Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 50 and the British have mobilized the Dragoons to end a Trekboer uprising in Graf Reinet. That will spark what is known as the Third Frontier War. But first, let's have a quick look at a powerful party that arrived in 1799 that was going to change everything on the frontier. The missionaries. The idea started earlier, on November 4th, 1794, when a small group gathered in Baker's Coffee House, Change Alley, London. The outcome of this gathering was the London Missionary Society, LMS, which was formed to attend the funeral of bigotry and propagate the gospel among the heathen. It was to be of no particular religious denomination and launched as an umbrella organization, which would be left to the minds of the persons whom God may call to assume for themselves such form of church government as to them shall appear most agreeable to the word of God. These people would be hated by the colonists eventually, as you're going to hear. Much of the resolute reforming spirit fostered by the evangelical humanitarians, as Noel Mustad observes, was to roll forward from the 18th century into the 19th and was to fix upon the Cape and its eastern frontier. Southern Africa was the natural extension of the sentiment of abolition with initial reports of the treatment of the Khoi flooding into post-Renaissance Europe and shocking liberals and conservatives alike. For a period from now until the middle of the 19th century, the power and influence of missionaries was going to be virtually unsurpassed. The London Missionary Society, LMS, was faithful to the original example of John Wesley in terms of a practical design for propagating a message. Social media would have been a perfect platform for Wesleyans, as they used what they called their instruments to match their illiterate enthusiasts. The first leader of the LMS of any significance was a Dutchman by the name of Johannes Theodorus van der Kemp, who was a doctor and medical scholar. Born in Rotterdam in 1748, and the son of a Lutheran minister, he had an eclectic youth and had an acquisitive intellect and linguistic flexibility at which the Dutch appeared to excel. Excuse my racial profiling comment, but do some probing of your own if you think this is misplaced. By the time van der Kemp was in his mid-twenties, he spoke 16 languages, including Hebrew, Arabic and Sanskrit, and he didn't need Duolingo. After learning all these languages, something wild was triggered and he joined the army as a cavalry officer, living the next 16 years in the depths of vice and ungodliness. His quote, not mine. He was apparently, and in no particular order, a rake, which is defined as a womanizer, a gambler, a whoremonger, arrogant, a hot-tempered fighter, and a disbeliever in the divinity of Christ. Then his military career suffered a short circuit when he married a lowly millworker woman against the wishes of his well-off family as well as his close friend, the Prince of Orange. This led to the womanizing rake of Rotterdam heading off to Edinburgh to study medicine instead of making war, then returning to Holland as a physician in 1791. Terrible things happened shortly afterwards. He saw his wife and child drown before his eyes when a violent storm overturned the small boat he was rowing. In grief, he abandoned medicine and turned to theology and cosmology searching for meaning. This led to what he called a new birth. He was born again, basically, to use a modern term, and then sought salvation. Naturally, this led to him responding to a story in a paper after the formation of the London Missionary Society, and heathens in Africa were now on his mind. After being ordained as a minister in the Church of Scotland, 
he sailed for the Cape of Good Hope in December 1798 at the age of 50. The missionaries were about to arrive in southern Africa and things would never be the same again. Van de Kemp noted as he sailed down the coast of Africa that every part of the vast continent presented what he called a distressing and lamentable picture, with the exceptions of Cape Town and what he called the benevolent settlement at Sierra Leone where freed slaves from the Indies and America were resettling. As Van de Kemp and his companions John Edmonds, J.J. Kirshner and William Edwards sailed south, major moves were afoot. Napoleon's thrust at India through Egypt had begun along with French intrigues in India itself, with Tipu Sahib bringing new alarms there, and three of the strongest British regiments in the Cape were dispatched eastwards. We'll return to both Napoleon and the missionaries in future podcasts, as they were going to have a major impact on southern Africa. In the Cape, the naval squadron was reduced, and as mentioned a few podcasts ago, a fire in Cape Town had destroyed a large part of the British military and naval stores and killed most of the cavalry horses. Then the Trek Boers in the Zurfeld, the Eastern Cape, rebelled once more in 1799, with the elderly Adrian van Jasveld freed from British captivity by the rebels as he was dragged back to Cape Town to face the trial for fraud. But the British did manage to cobble together a detachment of dragoons, as you know, which was shipped off to Algoa Bay and ordered to crush this uprising of around 200 Trek Boers. The grandly named Brigadier General Thomas Packenham van der Leeu landed on the scenic shores of Algoa Bay, along with his blue-jacketed dragoons and 50 Hottentot Corps soldiers dressed in the finest British military tunics. They marched inland from Algoa Bay and reached Graf Reinet on the 19th of March, 1799. It was suddenly very clear to both the British and the Trek Boers that most of the latter did not have the stomach for a proper fight. The great majority of the burghers, particularly those from the northern Sneerbach district, preferred to surrender. They had no direct interest in the Zurfeld and felt very little for their Boer brethren. The rebel leaders, including Van Jasveld and Martinus Prinsler, retreated southwards to the Brankieshoogte district, with Van der Leeu and the Khoi Corps in pursuit. Eventually the British dragoons caught up with the Boers on the 6th of April 1799, and Prinsloer and 112 of his followers surrendered at Boschbach without a shot being fired. In their determination to be master of the last frontier, the British dispatched Prinsloer and his son, along with Van Jasveld, to Cape Town to stand trial for high treason. They were sentenced to death, but for the umpteenth time this would not be carried out. Instead, it was commuted to life imprisonment. Ten others were banished from the colony back to Holland, Van Jasveld's pugnacious and disruptive career had come to a screeching halt, and he was doomed to die in prison. That should have been that, but in southern Africa that is hardly ever that. The British dusted their hands looking smug. They were now in control of Graf Reinet and the Eastern Cape. All appeared in order. Until, of course, it didn't. The situation began to escalate quite rapidly into an unprecedented conflict and was entirely the fault of the British themselves. At least for once, the historians agree on something when it comes to race, empire, and violence. The oppressed Khoikhoi of the border districts realized that the Boers were now beatable, and the sight of Khoikhoi troops, the Hottentot Corps, rounding up Dutch Trek Boers at the point of a bayonet, sent a thrill through the region. Many now rose up on the Zurfeld, as they'd done in the Matkwaland, moving in large groups from farm to farm and demanding payback for years of abuse and torture. 
It began with these men pitching up and seizing all the guns they could find in lieu of the cash they were owed. In response, the Trek Boers did what they usually did and formed a large commando to deal with the Khoi. The Khoi in turn fled into the arms of the British. They were seeking shelter from the Boer reprisals. Their leader was Klaus Stuermann, who met with van der Leer and verbally harangued him, speaking of the blood his people had shed and how it should be avenged. He demanded that the Brigadier General bring liberty back to the Khoi people. Restore the country of which our fathers were despoiled by the Dutch, and we have nothing more to ask, thundered Stuermann. Van der Leer was rather shaken by that, as to him it appeared that the Khoi had been reading from the Slave Revolt Handbook of the Cape, and been influenced by the French Revolution. Still, he decided to try and appease Stierman and hired 100 Khoi for the Hottentot Corps, and they duly marched off along with families in tow. They were ultimately going to head for the unit's camp at Rietvallet near Cape Town. Van der Leer also persuaded the rest of the Khoi who had been raiding the Trekboer farms to surrender their arms. These 500 mainly men were a large group for this time in history, but were now under British escort and headed to the British camp at Ferreira's farm near the Swartkops River in Algoa Bay. If you went there today, it would be in the vicinity of Motherwell Township near Blue Water Bay, north of Tabacha, or what was recently known as Port Elizabeth. Unfortunately, history produced one of those incidents where you could use the phrase wrong place, wrong time. You see, a few hundred Boers had gathered at the same farm ostensibly seeking British protection from the rampaging Khoi. What prompted Van der to accept both sets of combatants in the same place at the specific moment is hard to fathom. These two deeply antagonistic peoples, the Khoi and the Boers, had to be kept apart on Ferreira's farm by a British gun that was rolled ashore from the warship anchored in the bay under the command of that youngster we met called John Barrow. I'll return to what happened there in a moment. But at this point, Governor-General Dundas, back in Cape Town, was brimming with ideas about killing two birds with one stone. Why not, he thought, deal with the Amatkoza lurking in the Zierfeld now that the Boers had been defeated? Dundas opened a new and disastrous front by issuing an order to Van der Leer for gently hushing the Amatkoza back into their own country on the other side of the Fish River. Gently hushing? How does one gently hush a Tosa warrior off his own land? Surely one of the strangest orders ever delivered to a brigadier general. Vandalier was not only militarily inept, he was also to be diplomatically inept in what happened next. Vandalier was going to wade very deeply into very treacherous waters. You see, at this time, Nkosetunga of the Amakonukwebe, of whom we've heard a great deal, had been busy extending his power and authority over his neighbours in the Zutfeld. The war of 1793 had weakened these Tosa chieftains, and by 1799, Tungwa claimed the Sundays River to the west of the Zierfeld as his boundary. Meanwhile, Vandelier, who was northeast of the Sundays River, began to patrol the Zierfeld, and his route lay along the bank of the river, which flows from the northwest towards the southeast. You can see where this is going. Tungwa was not a happy chieftain as he led his men, and they scoured the western reaches of the Zierfeld. His position was being challenged by Mnyaluza, who you've also met. Remember, he was Ntlambi's brother. Both had fled into the Zutfeld after being defeated by Nika in 1795. So there was Van der Leer and his new Khoi recruits and his dragoons plodding along the bank of the Sundays River downstream towards Ferreira's farm when they bumped into Tungwa. The Matkosa chief was deeply unhappy to see them, as he, of course, was protecting his western boundary. At the same time, all Van der Leer saw 
was a warlike party of Amatosa and put one and one together to make eleven instead of two. Dundas, of course, had told him to hush all Tosa eastwards of the Fish River, which, by the way, is about 200 kilometers away from where they were to the northeast. Van der Leer pointed eastwards and indicated to Tungwa that he needed to take off, get the hens to the Fish River. No doubt Tungwa did a double take. Here was an Amatosa warrior who Barrow described as a man of prepossessing countenance and tall muscular figure, being ordered into the British general's camp to negotiate, only to be ordered hence, like an inquedine, a snotty-nosed little child. Noting the guns and dragoons and his own immediate exposed position, Kungwa gave what Barrow called a kind of reluctant assent. Then Vandalia moved out with his disciplined troops and did one more circuit of the frontier districts collecting troop detachments and verifying that the Trekboer rebellion was indeed quashed. Eventually he turned once more towards Algoa Bay and his base camp, no doubt looking forward to spending a few days on board one of the British ships anchored there. As fate would have it, and close to where he first bumped into Tungwa, he ran into the Amatosa chief once again. Bandelier repeated the order for the Tosa to leave the Zutfeld, this time in more threatening terms. Kungwa refused absolutely and suddenly his warriors became hostile. Bandelur decided it was time to flex the colonial muscle and, in his words, used two or three rounds of grape to disperse them. Grape is an anti-personnel shot fired from cannon. Basically, it's a giant shotgun. These were the opening shots of Britain's own entry into the frontier wars of South Africa. Kungwa's men disappeared into the thick bush of the Eastern Cape ravines to wait their chance. Vandalier, in the meantime, sent Barrow downriver back to Algoa Bay with the Khoi troops, then went off to bring back patrols he'd sent to reconnoiter the coastal flatlands to the north. They'd been rounding up Onukwebe and chasing them away, but now they were exposed. One of these patrols was led by Lieutenant Jack Chamney, who found himself surrounded by a large group of Tosa warriors. His small detachment had no chance. The warriors took turns leaping into their midst from the thick bush, attacking them with the assegais having broken off the shafts. These were now very effective short-stabbing knives. The British detachment was overwhelmed before they had time to use their muskets and bayonets effectively. Chamney staggered three blades sticking out of his body. Sixteen other British troops were already dead. These violent moments always produce memorable stories. Chamney realized that the Tosa were focusing on him because he was the commander, and so he lured the warriors away from the rest of the detachment and was stabbed to death. Four British troops escaped and made it to Algoa Bay to relate the terrible news. This was the start of the Third War on South Africa's eastern frontier, and one that was to be very different from the previous wars involving the Trekboers and the Amatosa. It was the first time that the Tosa were to face a proper and organized army with a full weight of an empire behind it. And because of this, they would fight each other for the next 80 years. It was also the first time that the white forces in southern Africa were going to fight against the combination of indigenous people in the region because the Khoikhoi and Amatosa were going to form an alliance. Acting Governor General Dundas was largely to blame for what happened in the next few months, starting in March 1799, although, as the case with Gattis Deployees, he was to blame everyone else. At this stage, the Amatosa were still figuring out who these British people were. They clearly weren't the Boers, despite their pale skins, because they dressed differently and spoke a different language. 
By April, Barrow was writing of how the Amatkosa, along with what he called vagabond Hottentots, were taking advantage of the instability to raid farms once more. The British had stimulated an uprising of note, and worse, they'd cut off arms and ammunition from the Boers who'd just been rebelling. This left the Trek Boers even more exposed. Koikoi knew the Boers were weakened, nothing like this had ever been seen before, and the Zurfeld exploded. When Barrow had led his 500-strong band of Koikoi to Algoa Bay as instructed, he was startled to find the Boer refugees there along with their wagons and cattle. The Khoikhoi and Boers wanted to kill each other, so Barrow brought the light gun from the warship and mounted it between them. But one night there was a sudden and mass desertion by a major part of the Khoikhoi. They had heard about Chamney's defeat and another where a British column under direct command of Vandeleur had been ambushed and only just escaped using concentrated musket and artillery fire. The Khoikhoi also double-guessed British motives, believing they'd force them to return to work for the Boers and also that the British would never redress their grievances. So most actually switched sides and joined Kungwa's Unugwebe and the war. It was a shrewd, albeit devious move, because van der Leer was indeed planning to send some back to the Boers once things had settled down. The Brigadier General now decided to pull back to Algoa Bay as the Amakosa ambush on his unit unnerved him. Writing a letter upon arrival at the bay, he railed about fighting savages in the midst of impenetrable thickets, and how this would add little luster to the British arm. It was below the British, he said, to fight in this way, so he called it quits instead, and ordered most of his troops to embark aboard the ships in Algoa Bay and sail to Cape Town, tails tucked between their blue breeches. What a pity, wrote Lady Anne Barnard that the Amatkunukwebe were every annoyed by forcing them out of a territory where they had been doing no harm. The wife of the colonial secretary was far more perceptive, it appears, than most of the menfolk around her at the time. For the British, the confused tactics were a complete catastrophe. Klaas Stierman, who had been negotiating with the British to ensure some kind of justice for his people in their struggle against the Boers, saw van der Leeu's hasty retreat as proof that the British couldn't be trusted. So he forged an alliance with the Amakunukwebe instead to be joined later by other Khoikhoi bands such as those of Hans Trompeter and a man by the name of Busak. They were highly experienced in commando fighting. They had horses and firearms and were used as achtereyas by the Boers. In conjunction with the Amakunukwebe who were on foot, they fanned out vengefully through the Zurfeld, rustling cattle, burning homesteads, plundering wagons and killing Trek Boers. Fifteen Trek Boers were killed and at least a dozen women and children were taken prisoner. The Khoikhoi were no longer fighting to stop colonial expansion. They were now fighting as a colonized people. And now they had a powerful ally in the Amakosa who were still fighting to stop expansion, albeit in their own haphazard way. Next episode, we'll return to the Third Frontier War and I'll explain how this was the first in which the British army faces such a powerful group of warriors with expertise in bush warfare, the shock of which was to become a distinctive feature of the second half of the 20th century. The British found these rough ravines full of brambles and thorn thickets and kind of natural fortified causal castle. They couldn't be stormed though with ladders and bayonets and rousing cheers. Instead, it wore them to shreds with forced marches through the bush and across rocky terrain. Their red coats, brass buttons and braids, torn and shredded. As trooper John Ship said later, 
It was laughable to see what happened to our white regimental trousers. Holes in them had been patched with whatever material came to hand, no matter what the texture or colour, so that from a distance we looked like Falstaff's ragged recruits. And of course that created the multicolour look of more modern bush camo. While all of this was going on in a land far, far away, well, not that far away, but culturally a different planet, an area north of the Tugela River stretching into modern Mozambique and Swaziland was being affected by the Delagoa Bay trade. The export of ivory had allowed some Africans to accumulate power and wealth. So in the 1790s, there was a political amalgamation going on at the expense of the weaker, smaller clans in this area. The state was set for the emergence of strong leaders, with some like Shaka, who'd ruled by terror, and others like Moshweshwe, who ruled through winning the devotion of his followers. The resulting period of state formation often involved stages of conquest by force and then led to two decades of violence compounded by the arrival at the same time of European traders. In the east, the ivory trade had done good business around Delagoa Bay, and American slave ships arrived later, as well as whaling ships which were to put in there through this period. Across the northern border of the Cape Colony, renegade Griqua and Cora were making merry. The migration of the Boers intruded further, and the whole region between the Orange, Tugela, and Limpopo rivers began to experience severe disruptions. As promised, we'll focus in part during the next few episodes on the people who occupied the land alongside the Umfulosi River through the latter part of the 18th century and into the early 19th. So with that, we'll halt the episode. You can contact me with any comments or suggestions through the website desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. (laughs) 